It's been four months since Yuval Roos stepped into his new role at Digital Asset as CEO. Roos, a co-founder of the firm, had a goal of making the company, which was best known for partnering with large financial institutions on blockchain projects, more open. On this episode of The Scoop, Roos joined myself and the block's Ryan Todd to discuss his transition into the CEO suite and what it's been like to take the reins after the exit of Blythe Masters. We also dove into blockchain strategies across cloud providers like Amazon, as well as the success of Digital Assets' partnership with the Australian Securities Exchange. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the Blocks analyst Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the Block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Lester, thank you so much for helping us out. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to The Scoop the Blocks podcast for crypto thrill seekers and decision makers. I am back from Montauk. I'm Tan. I'm joined with my colleague, Ryan Todd. He's excited to chat with our very special guest today. I'm excited to chat with our very special guest today, the CEO of Digital Assets, Yuval Ruz. Thank you so much for coming into the studio to talk to us. Thank you, Ryan uh, and Frank. You're welcome. Thank you so much. No worries. So let's dive into it. I mean, there's Digital Assets has been in the headlines quite a bit recently. Um, you guys are best known probably for being uh, the blockchain company that is helping navigate big banks into this market, but there's been some changes. You guys are pivoting. You're new in your seat. You're helping drive that change into really uh, providing smart contracts as a solution for these firms. Tell me about your new seat. How's it going he actually had the first interview, the first Q&A as CEO with The Block. Um, well, Frank, you're right. Uh, the first interview was with you, and I wish the first podcast would also be with you, but I'll take uh, number 11 uh, uh, with a lot of happiness. But um, a lot of things have happened since I became CEO. Um, as you're aware, I actually started Digital Asset, and uh, I've been there uh, throughout the beginning of the journey. And you know, I'm sure if you interviewed a lot of other CEOs from startups, they will tell you about the ups and downs of the startup life and things change over time. And this industry started with a lot of attention from day one when technology was even, wasn't even ready. 
uh, and things are shaping as time changes. And uh, since I took over as CEO, there has been some very encouraging announcement, both for digital asset and the industry. So it started with the announcement of Daml becoming open source. And after it became open source, uh, we made an announcement together with VMware and uh, Sawtooth, making Daml available on those blockchains. And last week, we made some very exciting announcements, uh, making Daml available on R3 Corda, uh, which is another very popular uh, blockchain for enterprise, and Fabric, which is uh, the most used open source uh, blockchain. Uh, and other than that, we also made an announcement um, uh, um, in line with our strategies that Daml shouldn't just work on blockchains, but also should work on centralized databases. So we made an announcement that Daml is going to run on AWS Aurora. So a lot of very exciting things, and you know the strategy is panning out as planned. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about uh, are we out of the blockchain space, and you know, maybe before you ask me that question, I'll just take take uh, one step further and say, Daml itself was created with blockchain in mind. So uh, when you think of uh, how do I get all of the features of Daml out there and get get the most advantage actually running it on a blockchain will yield all of those features. So some of the features uh, the DAML can provide to the users are not available when you run it on a centralized database. Um, it gives you certain features that you wouldn't get on a blockchain, but certain features um, um, that you can get unless you run it on a blockchain. So from that perspective, we're fully dedicated uh, to the blockchain space. And I think that the announcements that we made recently are if anything, just positive to that industry. So you guys sort of started out as thinking about how can we use blockchain to improve settlement clearing at different banks, right? Is that still something you guys are looking at or is it exclusively now? How can we help them leverage smart contracts, leverage DAML, um, and also leverage this technology for even centralized databases? Right. So I think when, when digital assets started, it wasn't that we were trying to uh, solve clearing and settlement. We actually entered into this space thinking that there's many use cases that are applicable to this technology. Uh, clearing and settlement was one of the early ones because of the relationship with ASX and that that yielded a very, very good uh, and real use case uh, that I think this industry was lacking in many cases. A lot of people were looking, what is the right use case? So it's not that digital asset was started to solve clearing and settlement. It was just that that was one of the early use cases. At the end of the day, uh, at digital asset, we believe that uh, DLT and smart contracts uh, have a lot of use cases uh, that could benefit from using this technology. And as I said, you know, on your first question, um, when this industry was created, quote unquote, um, there was a lot of attention and there was not much built. Uh, so if you look at some of the significant players in this market, what they had to do is just start building everything. They had to build everything top to bottom. So in the case of ASX, we build the blockchain, we build the smart contract language, we're building the solution, we're doing everything. In most industries that are mature, you find that players come in and find their sweet spot and are not trying to do everything from top to bottom. Uh, and I think that that's kind of the difference that you've been seeing in this industry. So just, just going back to it, we are very committed to the ASX. The ASX made it very clear that they are on time. Uh, they just recently uh, uh, opened uh, the testing environment for their participants to actually start testing the functionality. Um, so we're very committed. 
we're very committed to blockchain. Um, again, you will see some announcement when it comes to blockchain and how much we believe uh, in that uh, piece of technology. And we also believe that DAML is a differentiator compared to everything else out there. And what you're seeing recently is us putting a lot of emphasis on where we think DAML could cause a significant positive change to the mm-hmm. industry. So, so I'm actually real quick on, on DAML. Is there an analog to uh, other languages that are used by developers in other industries to, to DAML? Or like how, how do you think about that um, for your average layperson, what that, what that can provide? Yeah, so I think before we make the analogy, I just if you think of technology as a trend, uh, what technology does and did over the years is it provided abstraction where things become repeatable and when things become more complex, you want the developers not to worry about some of the repeatable tasks that before that in the previous generation they had to do. So if you go all the way back to assembly code, I mean, every developer had to write every piece of instruction that the computer would process. Right? As the world become more and more complex, there's just no human that is capable of building a clearing and settlement system using assembly code you know, instructions. So effectively, there is a trend with technology, and you're seeing it across the board, not just in blockchain, where technology, as it becomes more and more complex, what you do is you find these patterns of how can you abstract away some of those complexities away from the developers, in order to allow them to develop things that are more complex without having to worry about every small piece. DAML is effectively, if you want to keep it very simple, is doing exactly that. It's a, if you have... It's a good analogy sort of thinking about it like what Wix does from a website development perspective. Actually, that's, that's a great... I, I use that analogy a lot of times where if you think of um, 20 years ago what it took a developer to build a very simple website uh, and you had a team of you know tens of engineers to build today, you know, a teenager with Wix can effectively do the same. So a lot of these companies on the front end, on the websites, what they've done is they took the building blocks of a website and realized how you can abstract all of that away from from developers and actually give a pretty um, uneducated person be do fairly complex things. Now, I'm not saying that we will have exactly the same level of abstraction, that an uneducated person will be able to create a clearing and settlement system. I won't be able to do it. But... That's the direction that we're going. So, so the idea is that building these systems, these very sophisticated multi-party systems, is becoming more and more complex. And if you think of uh, historically, you build it on a centralized database with very well-known tools. Now you're involving a distributed system, and you now you're trying to orchestrate which party is allowed to see which part of the information. How do you orchestrate the messages between them? And if you're allowing the developer, again, to have more degrees of freedom with increased complexity of the use cases, it becomes a much harder problem to solve. And And it allows almost the folks on the business end who might not have that coding expertise to get involved more in the process of whatever they're building. I'm going to touch on that in a minute. But what, what we've been seeing a lot is when you start taking traditional tech and you want to build very complex distributed system use cases, which is what blockchain tried to do, they run into a wall after they reach a certain level of complexity because, again, the amount of degrees of freedom that the developer has to control is just, it gets out of control. So what DAML does is really, in in very simple terms, it, it abstracts that away from the developer. And effectively, what the developer has to focus is just how do I codify the behavior of my product? And they don't have to worry of how do I execute this product 
on a distributed system or on a centralized system. So when you look at DAML code, there's never any code that talks about connecting to a database or a blockchain. There's nothing that talks about encryption, message orchestration. It just defines the product. So now I'm going back to your comment about the business side. One of the patterns that we've been seeing, which is very encouraging with DAML, is that we're seeing some business analysts actually sitting together with the developers looking at the code that they're coding and in real time saying, you're actually coding this smart contract, this functionality, the way I intended it Mm -hmm. uh, to behave. And that's a very powerful combination because traditionally what you would have is that the business analyst will write specification, they'll hand it over to the developer, the developer will go and do their magic, and somehow at the end there will be some testing and QA done to verify that the developer actually coded the intended behavior. Today we're seeing that time gap between developer working with the SME or the subject matter expert much closer to one another, sometimes even at the same time. And that's extremely powerful. So what exactly are folks and what type of firms are using this, are using DAML to to build things and what are they building with it? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. So I mean, the, the most famous project is the ASX, but in that case, we're doing most of the development work. Um, ASX being? The Australian Stock Exchange, thank you. Um, So the project we're doing there is that to replace the entire behavior of the Australian Clearinghouse, Settlement House, Sub-Registry, and the entire life cycle events of uh, Australian cash equities. So that's a fairly complex project. We're actually doing the development ourselves. But again, because of that abstraction layer of DAML, we're capable of building such a complex project with actually a fraction of the engineers that traditionally you would use to build such a complex use case. But if you put away the projects... But you're we, building the use case. We're building them. the use case. Uh, ASX are designing it, mm-hmm. uh, and we're actually implementing it. But if you look at some of the other use cases where the uh, client is actually implementing the use case themselves, um, what you're seeing is uh, a combination of traditional developers. Um, if you think of banks, uh, quants are, generally speaking, really good DAML developers just because... They have the right combination of being technical enough, but also have a very good understanding of how the business behave. And again, DAML gets you closer and closer to how the business behave. Not how do you execute your business on technology, but how does the business intended to behave? So what are some of the use cases for quantitative training firms? So uh, just recently, uh, just actually last week, uh, UBS announced that they're uh, launching a structured product. Uh, business uh, on top of DAML. So again, uh, structure products by definition are very complex instruments. And again, if you have something that is already complex by nature, and then you want to execute it properly. We love derivatives. Frank is all about structured products <laughs> and credit derivatives. They make fun of me for for wanting to write about derivatives since I probably have the least amount of expertise. On so, so, so you know how how by nature they are complex, and now you want to a- execute them properly. What DAML does is, again, allows you to abstract away and really just define the behavior of the structure product um, and, and gives you uh, the ability to go to market way faster, which actually brings up an interesting point that a lot of people think of blockchain and smart contracts as mainly associated with post-trade, with how to uh, reduce costs from the system. I completely disagree with that statement. I think that post-trade and reconciliation was the first use case that people thought about But actually, if you think of what I just said uh, in this podcast, the idea of abstracting away 
defining your products uh, and the behavior of your products way more efficiently and faster actually gives much more opportunity also to the front office, which if you think of the UBS, how do I create these complex instruments faster, get them to market faster, actually create top top uh, revenue and not just cut from the bottom. So break down for us exactly what the difference would be for a UBS if they were going to, you know, execute on delivering these these um, these new products. How is it different using DAML versus going about it without traditional software? Yeah. So again, um, the the guarantee that we're uh, providing with DAML is that we believe that if you described your product um, with DAML. It will be executed on a centralized database or on a DLT exactly the same way if you were to just code it directly yourself. Um, so from, from the end user, you won't see the difference. From the business perspective, there's a massive improvement because, again, that abstraction, what we're going towards is a 10x developer efficiency. So the ability to either get to market 10x faster with the same number of developers or to get with the same timeline with uh, 10% of your developer's capacity. So what does it mean to UBS or any other, like if you think of just a fintech startup that just wanted to create a new product and get to market, if they can do it with 10% of the headcount that they would traditionally need in order to bring the same product, I mean, that's a huge advantage, right? So that's really what it does. Now, Bottom line is digital assets is destroying jobs on Wall Street. Um, I don't think so. I think that you can, again, think about the fact that if today you could do something um, with the same headcount, you can do 10x the efficiency. I think one of the things that Wall Street is looking for is a way to innovate at a faster pace. So I think that one of the things that I think Wall Street should take from this is we can actually uh, improve our capability of adding new functionality to our customers um, so from that perspective, I actually see this as an opportunity for Wall Street. So for for the UBS um, use case specifically, are they are they leveraging DAML for a centralized database or on DLT? I, I can't I can't mention other than what's sure. in the public domain. I don't know uh, if it's public or not. I, I, I don't think that they said what is oh, the underlying okay, okay. platform that they're going to run it on. Other how, than they're using in, in that sort of relationship, um, how do you make money from that? That's a that's a good question. So a lot of people, when they heard that Daml is being uh, open source, uh, they thought, "So are you becoming a nonprofit organization?" Which we we clearly uh, haven't yet. Um, yeah, don't tell all your investors. Yes, what did you guys yes, raise? One hundred eighty-three million dollars. Uh, we raised one hundred and ten. One hundred and ten. Uh, yeah, and I don't know um, where I got that from. <laughs> that might be backed, actually. One eighty-three <laughs> or one eighty-two. It doesn't matter. But not us. Not a nonprofit. $110 million. So, so, so the idea is that um, in order to capture the, the usage of DAML uh, in uh, enterprise-grade ledgers, that connectivity between DAML and the ledger is something that is not created for all ledgers. So, for example, if you wanted to use DAML on Postgres, you just download our software development kit, and it runs on Postgres. It's a free, centralized, open source database, and you can use DAML on top of it. And that's you will never see a dime from that. But if you wanted to run it on an enterprise-grade uh, ledger, um, the idea is that that connectivity, that quote-unquote driver to make DAML run with high throughput, with all the features uh, out of DAML in that ledger, um, we have agreements with ledger providers of how to monetize that. So. Um, when DAML 
gets used on an enterprise ledger that you as a customer pay for, uh, we see revenue from that. What do you think the breakdown is in terms of folks who will just use DAML, open, open source DAML to build things without the enterprise um, layer underneath it with your guys' help as opposed to using you yeah, guys? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think it's too early to give you a definite answer on what is the actual breakdown. The way that I would think about it is you want to reduce the barriers from developers to actually getting into production. Uh, and from that perspective, most companies that have been successful had a free tier that got people far enough to actually prove that the technology is what they want to use for a viable business. Where So what I think you're going to see is that actually majority of people should use DAML for free and really shouldn't pay for it. And really it's only those projects that are mature and get to a level that from a commercial perspective, they're viable, right? At that point, they don't mind paying for enterprise-grade product because they have a business, a real business behind it. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to quote any numbers because I think it's too early, but I think that every successful project, for the most part, most users are free. Um, and it's really just those users that got to a level of maturity and viability that end up being paying customers. If I always like to ask companies and whether we're talking with cryptocurrency executives, blockchain executives, smart contract executives, what what's the parallel to traditional finance or Wall Street? What do you view digital assets as? If, if let's say a Coinbase is the New York Stock Exchange of the cryptocurrency world, or you know um, Genesis Global Trading's the uh, Jane Street of the cryptocurrency world, what is digital assets in the blockchain world to normal? I think that eventually what you're going to see, and, and I think that this is also applicable to uh, some of the other enterprise blockchains, not all of them. Um, I think in the enterprise blockchain, you'll, you see two, um, two groups. You're going to see the ones that are uh, like, um, you know, uh, solution businesses. So if you think of like what some of NASDAQ does or Cinnabar that was just acquired by NASDAQ, that they actually use technology to provide an end-to-end solution, right? Um, so you'll see some of those companies. Uh, so I think that there are companies in the space that are like that. Digital asset, in the case of ASX and some of our other clients, are also providing the solution. And then you see the ones that purely want to be technology providers. Uh, and I think that that's... Um, the direction that I want to take digital asset is that, yes, we have clients. We want to make sure that we focus on clients where they need us to provide the solutions. But where you're going to see digital asset is just a technology layer that gives some of the customers in Wall Street a boost in productivity and the ability to innovate at a faster pace than they are capable of doing today. So as, as a vendor in the space, how do you see your positioning yourself to get more business akin to what... ASX is doing. If it's been such a success, why aren't we going to other small marketplaces around the world to offer the same sorts of technology? So we are. Uh, I think that all eyes are on ASX just because of the scale, right? There's not a lot of uh, uh, companies at that scale that are willing to be that innovative um, and uh, innovative and um, so you just don't see a lot of that happening. But if you look just at the project with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, I mean, that's, that's 
in my opinion, as interesting and as scalable. Um, there are the Broadridge use case here in the US, and those are the ones that we work on that, in my opinion, are visible. You're going to see the UBS comes out. There's a few in the healthcare space. I think that uh, some of the uh, announcements early on this year, if anything, just help because what you're seeing from clients is who's going to win, right? Yeah. And one of the things that uh, you don't want to be in a situation which is clients are waiting to see who will win, right? So I think some of the announcement, making demo, for example, on Corda, um, those kind of announcements, if anything, just created much more interest from a lot of clients. Some that said, we're really, really, we like demo. We like the way that it abstracts away a lot of the complexities. But we think that Corda, for example, is a really good distributed ledger. Can we make them work together? So if anything, I think that some of these recent announcements of some of the big players in this space willing to work together is, if anything, going to create much more activity. Can you get can you get Daml to work with public blockchains as well? Um, we were hoping to make an announcement of that sort uh, last week. We weren't able to finish the was it EOS? exercise. <laughs> uh, it wasn't EOS, uh, but it was a very well-known uh, public blockchain. Uh, you heard it here first. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I'll be very transparent. We were at the IC3 bootcamp, um, and we uh, almost finished proving that you can compile DAML into EVM and, and show that it could run on Ethereum. So there's nothing. There's nothing that um, maybe maybe I should explain that there's nothing that prevents DAML from compiling into almost every blockchain or any type of persistence layer. But the clients might not be as interested in that. Um, I disagree. I, I'm, I'm just yeah, guessing, I, I don't know. Wherever you can actually abstract away the complexity of understanding how the infrastructure underneath you works, why wouldn't you be interested? Uh, the question is what, you know, a lot of ledgers, uh, I think that the most important thing to state is that by using DAML, you don't overcome deficiencies that exist in the ledger. What do I mean by that? So, for example, DAML can support data segregation, meaning you don't need to have all data uh, on one node. But if you run DAML on a centralized database, all data sits on the same node. So just by putting DAML on top of a centralized database, you didn't create data segregation. Effectively, what you're saying is the features of the ledger gets carried up by DAML. And I think that that's an important thing to say is that Sometimes people uh, come to us and say, hey, can we put DAML on top of our chain and it will fix some of our issues? And, and that's, that's not what happens. What DAML does is it says, I will transpose or I will carry through all of your features, but I will allow the developers not to worry about how to actually write to your blockchain. So there's nothing that prevents, there are some chains that are easier to integrate to. Uh, there are some chains that are, you know, takes a bit more work. You've talked about integrating so into R3 Corda or Hyperledger Fabric, Sawtooth. Um, wondering if you can comment on cloud and how digital asset looks to work with different cloud providers and even just like kind of pulling up high level strategy, like what's in it for these providers, the AWS Aurora and Microsoft Azure. Um, what's from your angle, what's, what's their blockchain strategy really all about? Yeah, so I think I think when you bring up cloud, it's it's a great question. I just want to make sure that we we break it down. Um, cloud has two components to it. Cloud, the idea of someone 
running your infrastructure for you because they do it at scale. And that's just from a financial perspective, more efficient. So that's generally speaking, cloud towards every piece of technology, not just blockchain or centralized database or AI or anything. Just cloud, its value proposition is they do it at scale. That's all they do. It's cheaper. Uh, they would say it's safer because that's all they do. It's much more distributed, you know, resilient. So that's just cloud, generally speaking, with respect to any technology. Uh, and, and so if you if you take just that aspect and you apply that to blockchain, what the cloud providers are saying, whatever is the blockchain that you want to run, if it's a very popular blockchain, we can effectively run it, run the nodes for you way more efficiently, right? So if you today wanted to run a Corda, a Hyperledger Fabric, Sawtooth, whatever, and you took that node in-house, you would need to have very expensive DevOps, developer operations, you would have to have your own infrastructure, you would have to pay a data center. All of those things are saying you can effectively achieve the same thing, just run your node on our cloud, it will be cheaper, faster, better. So that's one thing where you're seeing a lot of the cloud providers playing is they're saying, we can run these different blockchains that are popular just on our infrastructure. So they, they, and that's what you're seeing a lot of announcements from Microsoft, uh, you know, announcement from AWS, you're seeing VMware now playing, where they're saying, we support these blockchains that exist as is, and now you're going to see them uh, running on our infrastructure. That's one aspect of the cloud and where you're seeing them coming in, because they're seeing traction, people want to use these blockchains, they're saying, great, we'll offer it better, faster, cheaper. The other part is when they are actually starting to play in the technology itself. So they are actually taking an active role saying, this is, this is a piece of technology that we believe in mm-hmm. from, from a technology merit perspective. So this is independent of the cloud. This is them actually taking a stand on uh, what technology. So you saw the announcement from uh, Microsoft with uh, Quorum, you know, that they're actually now taking an active role in processing quorum transactions as, as a vendor. You're seeing uh, VMware entering the blockchain space saying, not only that we can run it within our cloud, we are actually going to build a blockchain ourselves. And by the way, we will also allow to process um, you know, uh, Ethereum smart contracts on it, chain code, and now Damo was the last announcement that they made. So now they're taking an active role in making decisions, what technologies they think are suitable to be consumed. So, and I think that, you know, you're going to see more and more of those happening as, as the market mature, you know, from, from the big tech providers. It's, uh, I won't go as far as saying that it's a free option, but with the amount of resources that they have and the client reach that they have, they allow the market to mature. They realize where are the use cases and then they come, you know, at the end, I mean, like, just think of, of cloud. Who was, you know, some of the first players in cloud, right? It wasn't Google. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't Microsoft. It was, you know, software, you know, uh, startups like Dropbox that came first. And then they all realized that there's something here and, you know, they can offer it, you know, again, bigger, better, cheaper. Um, so I think that, you know, announcement like Amazon QLDB, uh, things like that are going to really change the market um, and you're going to see them taking a much more active role. One of the reasons why we're focusing on making DAML available on as many offering out there is because we 
You want to eat up that market before one of the big tech giants jumps No, on. we want to play with them. Bet, yeah, exactly. We want to play with them. So we're, we're saying if VMware enters the market and they have client reach and they have good experience, we actually want to be able to play on top of their blockchain if their blockchain is successful. So when you joined three months ago, there were, there were three things that I think were core to what you were looking to execute on. We've talked about two of them, partnerships, integrating with with other folks' technology stacks, and uh, open sourcing DAML, or making the company more open, as you put it back then, as to not uh, you know show your hand too much. We also talked about working with clients who are not in financial services and use cases outside of financial services. You hit on healthcare earlier mm-hmm. on the show. Talk about, we can talk about healthcare, we can talk about other industries where DAML is something that will make their workflows you know, improved or better. Okay. I, I mean, listen, there's, um, there's not really... A use case that we ran into that you can't codify with DAML. I think that sometimes what we say to our clients, this is not complex enough that it's worth uh, barriers of entry for you to learn a new language just so you could say you were using it. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think that no different than with every, every piece of technology, um, there, are, there are barriers or there's a cost, there's a tax to adopt a new piece of technology. So we haven't run into uh, a use case that you couldn't use DAML. I think where we're seeing a lot of interesting use cases uh, is in healthcare, specifically there, because again, the the nature of, at least in the US, the amount of players that play in a very simple transaction, meaning just think about when you actually have to go and get just a simple day surgery in a hospital, you have no idea how many different players actually play in that one single transaction. Um, so in the healthcare, specifically in the U.S., we're seeing a lot of opportunities. We then, you know, when you go into insurance and into trade finance, again, the idea is where you're seeing very complex workflows is where DAML becomes very interesting. Um, I think that, um, I can't remember where, but someone said that uh, blockchain is is more than 50% about the business. How are you transforming the business than technology? And I actually tend to agree that even when you're seeing these complex use cases of multi-party, at the end of the day, those multiple parties need to agree that they want to make their business flow, the way that they do business, different and more efficient. And I think that that's where a lot of times you're seeing these proof of concepts hitting a roadblock because they're proving that with technology they can do it, and then they go and they say to all the parties, okay, let's do it. And they're like, oh, we have, we have other priorities right now. This is, not, this is not a top priority. So healthcare, insurance, trade finance. The interesting thing that we're going to see, I think Accenture announced uh, before about managing uh, software entitlement with DAML. And I think that that's extremely interesting because that starts getting into use cases where you're not starting to think about assets or how am I managing assets more in the traditional of finance, but actually managing assets like software entitlement. Uh, So going back into a whole digital rights management and things like that, where I think is extremely interesting. And there, there's a lot of interest in actually just making the business more efficient because how software entitlement is being audited today is very inefficient. So I'm hoping that later on this year, you will see some very interesting announcements in that space too. 
healthcare insurance and and finance, there's there's a huge landscape for you guys to um, eat into. Let's pivot. You're our first guest to you're our first guest that we've had on post Facebook Libra mania. We were talking about it before the show. You mentioned how digital assets and Libra might be incongruous to each other. What's your thoughts on on what they're doing? And do you think that it'll work? Yeah, so I don't have, you know, other than the white paper, there's not much visibility. Um, I think that um, what would be interesting to know about Libra is really what is the first use case? What is the killer app? Um, Is it banking, the underbank? I mean, like, and the question is, how are they solving it in those countries? I mean, how are people actually going to use it? Is there the infrastructure to use it? So to be honest, it's more interesting to understand what is the killer app, and I'm sure that they've thought about it, and I'm sure we're going to hear about it. Uh, so from that perspective, um, I'm well, still... Well, it's banking the unbanked, right? And yeah, and that's why I'm asking. It's like, but banking banking the unbanked, where? Where are they starting? Well, so Can't be India, can't be China, right? Because Facebook's banned in those countries, and they've said that... Uh, crypto's banned. Crypto's so banned. Service where, well, Facebook's where, banned in China as well. And right. They've said that they will only operate in countries where either cryptocurrency is legal or Facebook. So I'm more interested is legal. to first of all knowing where where is the first use cases that they're going to see. To be honest, um, I would I would love for the opportunity to figure out how uh, we can have Daml run on top of their uh, blockchain because again, at the end of the day, when you would want to write very complex use cases on top of Libra, you know, it's going to become more and more complex. And I think that that would be an interesting place for us to uh, work together. Yeah, have you looked at the? Have you looked at any of the smart contract potential that they could run? Yeah, on they, Libra? Have their, they have their own language, right? Um, so it's built on top of Rust. Uh, it's called Move, and and they said that it's not ready. Okay, uh, so it's yeah. not ready. <laughs> so you know we're ready, uh, but um, you know, again. It's very interesting. I think that what a lot of people are saying about Facebook is that, again, it's it's just a big testament to what is the potential of the technology, right? So will will Libra be successful? I mean, there are some serious players that are backing it, and it's definitely not something to be ignored. Uh, I just think that it's, again, a very good thing for the industry as a whole to have these kind of players make such a move. Do you feel bad that they didn't reach out to you to include you guys in the consortium? This is not uh, the place where I'm going to talk about the reaching <laughs> out about being in a consortium or not. But it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense for for digital asset regardless to be a a, a, a node on the Facebook consortium. Doesn't make sense for a lot of those folks to be a node. <laughs> That's. Uh, so you started digital asset what almost five years ago now. Um, you know, still a relatively young company, but in this market, that's that's a pretty long time to be around. Uh, what are you most proud of, and uh, how has this space evolved in ways that you thought it wouldn't when you first got in? Um, actually, what I'm most proud of is very easy. It's the people I get to work with. Uh, that's by far the the easiest thing to be proud of. So that the you had a tough task when you came in as CEO three months ago. I mean, Blythe Masters has incredibly you know incredible. 
I want to say big shoes to fill, but that kind of sounds. Like no, it. I mean that's fine. I hate I mean, that expression. I, yeah, um, not that you don't have big shoes as well, is what I'm saying. But you didn't invent the CLO. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I did not. I did not. <laughs> and and the morale of the company, you know, when you have a big figure like if Jamie Dimon were to step down from J.P. Morgan, it would be a similar type of. Well, here we go. How do we how do we shore up around the company? Make sure everybody knows that. There is a vision. I have a vision, and we're going to execute on it. Yeah, I think. Listen, it's it's a it's a good question, and I think that uh, you can look at it from uh, that's a hard thing to do, or you can look at it from this is a great opportunity. So, someone who gets to replace Jamie Dimon also get to reap the benefit of having all the infrastructure and all the momentum that Jimmy Jimmy Dimon created for you, right? Where if you wanted to go and recreate J.P. Morgan from the ground up by yourself. It wouldn't be as easy. So you're right that there's 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 big shoes to fill, and uh, that's not an easy task. But you could also say there's the brand, there's the recognition, there's a lot of projects that have been created. That, from my perspective, it's it's an opportunity to build on top of. And what is the sentiment within the company in in, in the fact of whether you've been able to do that? Listen, I think I think that uh, people at Digital Asset wanted to take a much more open approach, and I'm not saying that Blythe uh, was not planning on doing that. That was always the intention. In 2016, we announced that we were going to open source Daml. I think that them actually being part of this journey and actually seeing some of these things happening, the announcements that we've done with some pretty big players, if anything, is encouraging to them, and you know. Um, the, the strategy, everything that has been communicated to the uh, external world has been communicated with the team leads and with the team. So I think from that perspective, people are very excited. Do you have kids? Um, so I asked just like, how would you explain high-level smart contracts to, to a five-year-old? <laughs> so uh, a month after I talked to Frank, I became a father. Oh. Uh, so I don't think so the two-month-old <laughs> so, so is going to be understanding I any of this. Have, uh, Kid, and I, uh, he's not even capable of uh, keeping, his head keeping his stare at me for like 10 seconds. So I'm not, I'm not yet explaining to him what blockchain or smart contracts are. What's the appropriate age where, where you start to do that? Uh, what's the appropriate age? It's never too, too early. Um, I think, I think, to be honest, I, I'm a first time father and I can't. I can't give you, um, Brian. That might a be the weirdest question yeah. <laughs> you've ever asked. Age? I guess. I don't know. What is the appropriate age to, to explain, explain block- smart contracts? I think in my head, sometimes someone. I, I remember it, there were interview questions that are just like, I just don't know how to answer it. Then I will. Sorry, that's we just that, that no. Keep it in because it's so strange. I want you to be shamed for it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your background. Why don't we? Um, you were in high frequency trading. Uh, high frequency trading world. You mentioned before the show started, you were at Cumberland. Tell us how you went from uh, traditional finance and then found your way to uh, blockchain. What was that journey like? Okay, so we'll we'll just make sure that we're accurate on everything. Um, so I started as an ele- I studied electrical engineering. Uh, I s- then started as a developer at Citadel, and then moved into DRW where I did uh, DRW. Ec- DRW. Did yeah, you did. Um, and at Digital Asset, uh, we did uh, equity market making. Um, and then uh, at that point, I became uh, one of the team that started Digital Asset VC. Um, and we started that uh, very early on. 
that was roughly at the same time where Cumberland, which is a subsidiary of, of DRW, uh, was started. Actually, our head of product, uh, Eric Serenecki, is the guy who started Cumberland. Um, and we were looking from an investment perspective, companies to invest in the space. We actually made uh, an investment in a, a credit card uh, processing company in Israel uh, for uh, crypto uh, that are still doing very well, from what I understand. What's and the name of it? Simplex. Simplex, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, we were looking in the space, and uh, we just decided one day that we have the understanding of the technology, we have the financial backing, and the will to start a company ourselves. So I left uh, DRW uh, together with our head of product, Eric, who left Cumberland, uh, to start Digital Asset. And that's how the company started. How did you leverage, like what experience from the trading world did you leverage to build um, out so, the company so, in the beginning? So again, I came from a, from a trading world that is very tech heavy. Uh, so just that uh, as a start is very helpful. But I think that uh, when you actually think of uh, high frequency trading or just generally speaking where you use technology in trading, you have to be very practical. Uh, you really have to understand what is the technology offering uh, your business. And then we also hired a lot of people that have a lot of good business understanding of where are the inefficiencies uh, that exist in, the, in financial services. Uh, also having uh, you know, people like Don and Sunil and uh, Chris Conde on your board are people that really understand financial services and understand where are the inefficiencies in these markets. So having that combination of really understanding the technology with also understanding the markets that you're trying to go after is very helpful. I think in this space, you're seeing a lot of bias towards one side or the other. So you're seeing technologists that say, this technology can give you real-time settlement. And you clearly see that they don't understand financial services because you say you understand how netting is a good thing that people are interested. People don't want to have the cash for every trade that they do move in and out of their bank account. That's very inefficient. So that's why netting is actually a good thing as long as you can manage the risk. But people just say, oh, you can do real-time settlement. And they just don't take into consideration what are the impacts, what is the impact that this will have on the market from a market structure. And this is why I said earlier, I think in the blockchain space, the challenge is actually the business. How is the business transformed by adopting this technology? What does it mean to the players involved in this transformation? Does it make sense for them from a business perspective? And I think that a lot of times... A lot of people in blockchain are not asking if it makes sense from a business no. perspective. Correct. What do you think next six months, the next second half of the, the second half of the year, what are you most excited about? Um, I'm excited to see some of these announcements of the integrations actually being broadcast with actually clients behind it. So someone asked us, how do you decide what is your next integration? The next integration, I mean, I wanted yesterday to have every blockchain, every database, every public chain, private chain, all working with DAML. Of course, why not? Uh, but that's not realistic. And we have to be... What's the timeline for that to be realistic? Um, you know, it, it, again, it depends. So it will never happen with all of them, right? Because some of them, you know, have not, they're not going to be successful. They're not going to have that much traction. 
Um, so the, and you have to invest resources. To, yeah, you need to invest resources. Some of them are, like I said, easier. Some of them are harder. But it is it is it is resource constrained. And at the end of the day, uh, your next integration is a commercial discu- uh, decision. Uh, so the next thing that I would want to see uh, is actually uh, seeing these integrations uh, convert into actual clients using the the joint product. So what I want the next six months to be is uh, not necessarily just PR announcement, but actual real clients signing up to use DAML on top of Corda or on top of Fabric or on top of VMware. That's that's my main focus uh, in the next six months. Well, thank you so much for laying it all out and joining us today. We appreciate your time, Ryan. Thanks as always for joining us. Thanks, Frank. No worries. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.